0: The COVID-19 pandemic really accelerated our use and comfort with transferring formerly in-person interactions to online ones. Cooking classes are no exception. We talk with April Dodd of Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. It's on tip of the tongue. of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with April Dodd. She is Assistant Director of Education at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. She manages the Guest Chef Program at the Cooking School at Milk Street. Welcome, April.
1: Thanks for having me, Liz. I'm so happy to be
0: here. So I um, am really grateful to you for having introduced me to the cooking school through actually teaching a class for you. That was really exciting.
1: Yeah, we loved having you. The Limoncello in particular was a huge fan favorite. Thanks for teaching. It was a great class. You did such a good job.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So I'm really interested in what brought
1: you to food. I love that question. I started cooking for myself when I was 16 and my family was not a foodie family at all. We were very hamburger helper. We were very Pop-Tart. We were very much prepared foods family of six. And I, when I was 16, really wanted to respond in the opposite of that. I was not a very <laughs> angsty teenager but it felt like this big rebellion to be like I'm gonna make a pork chop which I horribly overcooked and it was inedible I'm sure but I just got really excited about moving as far away as I could from the Pop-Tart and so um, from there <laughs> Were, oh, you eat, were you cooking for your whole family
0: or just for yourself? Did you kind of do this a teenage thing where I'm just going to cook my own food?
1: <laughs> <laughs> or did you cook for the family? Well, I'm the youngest. So by the time I got excited about food, it was just me and my mom. But okay. I cooked for myself and for my mom and had a great time making a lot of truly horrible meals uh, that <laughs> I had a great time cooking. I watched a lot of Julia Child videos on YouTube. Uh And those meals, I'm sure were successful because I followed instructions, but I probably tried to improv way before I had any of the skills needed to be successful improvising in the kitchen.
0: (laughs) Okay. And so then what did you do? You said, oh, I
1: really like this and decided to move on with it. Not really, I really I was enjoying it a lot, but it, at that time it really didn't occur to me that that would be a career path that I follow. And so I went on to school, I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, not thinking really actively about the food side of things at all, but I've always loved studying foreign languages and Middlebury has a very, very strong foreign language program. So I went there to study linguistics, but sort of by chance, happened to find myself in this place that had a really strong commitment to local food and to the way its food is sourced and produced for the dining halls and needed a campus job, you know, when I was a freshman and found myself making huge batches of granola because Milk Street made all of its own granola, making it by the many, many gallons at a time in one of those big like rotating ovens. And I just loved it. I loved that I couldn't be multitasking. Like all my friends wanted to have library jobs where they could also do their homework. Oh yes, I I actually don't want that. I want to have my hands busy. I want to have something tangible that I've really produced at the end. And I don't know, I guess I don't want to be doing my homework. (laughs) And so then I just, I did like every food related campus job. I worked in the, as a dishwasher, I worked at what middlebury calls the language tables which is at lunch you can go and have a plated served lunch but at a table where you're only speaking the foreign language that you're studying mm-hmm. so i was a spanish and french and russian language table waiter which i loved and then i ran this pop-up student-run restaurant which gave me a really interesting first experience in what proper back of house looks like in a restaurant setting as opposed to a dining hall setting Mm -hmm. or catering. I just wanted to do all of the food related jobs. And by the time I had to write my senior thesis, which was in linguistics, I found a way to strong arm it into being about food and linguistics and wrote what I'm sure isn't a paper I never ever want to read again, but about the etymological development of the word organic over history because at that point I really wanted to be talking about food and that was the way that I did it. Oh, that's a really interesting idea
0: though. I yeah. had a
1: very interesting, I had a very fun time researching the paper and also had more fun doing my food jobs than writing my thesis.
0: Okay, so, so that's a really wonderful thing to learn so early in your career that you really liked this thing uh, yeah. that you hadn't really thought about as a career path. So many people graduate from college and they just say, oh, well, I don't know what I wanna do now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So it's I, wonderful that you have that
1: experience. Yeah, I, I feel very, very lucky that that's the place I ended up that where I was able to pursue an interest that I went in with, and which is still very, very important to me, studying and speaking foreign languages is something that is planted deep in my heart, but it also gave me this new career that I wasn't expecting. And by the time I graduated, I knew that what I was gonna be doing day to day in my job was gonna be related to food in some way. I just couldn't ever let go of how much gratification I got from the tangible outcomes of working with food.
0: Yes. And so what did you do after that?
1: How did you pursue finding a job in food? Um, Well, I did it a bit in fits and starts. I moved to France where I was working as an English teacher in a high school. So very much still employed in the language side of things. But I worked in a bakery on the side, on the side, meaning in the very early mornings. And (laughs) I loved it. I (laughs) i'm um, actually at the time it was extremely challenging i this is such a stereotypical thing it's so stereotypical i almost wish it weren't but i just got yelled at by this frenchman man. Constantly, <laughs> constantly i he was i was in we weren't i wasn't in pastry i was in bread making at the bakery and i was learning to shape baguette as my you know my first thing and he would take my dough and throw it against the wall like he was but then he was so nice but he was so mean and I think at the time it felt so emotionally wrecking for me but then the first day that I rolled the baguette and he was like that's acceptable it was such a triumph. And now I look <laughs> back on it with a lot of fondness. I think at the time I was waking up at three o'clock in the morning to go get berated in a basement. But <laughs> it means that I can shape a mean baguette now. Yeah, yeah. So I was working in in food sort of on the side in addition to my day job for a year when I was in France. And then I moved from uh, Saint-Étienne, which is the town in France where I was living. I moved to Nairobi, Kenya from there because my then boyfriend now husband had gotten a job working in Nairobi and we had been doing long distance for a long long time so I moved to Nairobi had no idea what I was going to do I was on a tourist visa initially and by pure happenstance stumbled into a job at a cupcake shop (laughs) and ended up doing recipe development for a cupcake shop where I also and this is where it Things felt like they kind of clicked together for me. I also got to start teaching baking classes for like for school groups, for like the equivalent of the, the Girl Scouts, for people in our community. And it, it all just linked together, right? How much I had enjoyed teaching English and, and thinking as an educator earlier in my schooling and in my life and then my love for food. And it was like, oh, that's the thing. And that, that really, I think, is the, the turning point in my professional career that ultimately pointed me to Milk Street. Okay. So how long have you been at Milk Street? I've been at Milk Street for just a little over three years. I started in 2019 and initially was very much focused on running our in-person classes at our space in downtown Boston. But of course, as we all know, That only lasted for about (laughs) one year before COVID started and my job flipped on its head and became running virtual cooking programming.
0: So that's really what I want to talk to you about, because obviously this is something that has just kind of taken off. I think people had been trying to do this before, so I don't think it was the first time anybody thought about virtual classes, Mm -hmm. but I think that we were in a circumstance that was conducive to making it develop and develop quickly as opposed to sort of evolve gradually. So what have you learned about teaching online that you didn't anticipate and also how it's changing and what you think about
1: it for the future. Oh, so many things. I know, know. I know. I'm sorry, it was too big of a question. (laughs) I have learned so, so much in the past two years. To be honest, the biggest thing for me personally that I've learned is that I can enjoy and really, in fact, love running virtual classes. I think if you had asked me in, in 2019 or in early 2020, like, Hey, what would you think about teaching these cooking classes over zoom or Skype or whatever platform we were using? like that? Uh-huh. I would've been like, absolutely not. It is critical to me to be with people, to, to see them, to be able to like physically demonstrate things and support people that is crucial to educational success. I'm a hundred percent sure that that's how I would have answered that question two and a half or three years ago. Mm -hmm. And now I feel completely differently about it. What I've seen in the past two, two and a half years is that people really can learn how to cook and learn how to cook better in virtual classes. And it's not just, oh, well, this is the format we have to use until we can get back to doing it the quote unquote right or better way. Mm -hmm. I actually think that in a lot of ways, virtual classes are the best way to learn how to cook. A big part of it for me is that if you're cooking at home in your own kitchen, you're really learning how to cook in the realistic environment where you're going to be doing it. I'll be honest, when you come to Milk Street, everything always comes out perfect because, right, because all Mm of everything is really really, really high quality. Our pots and our pans and our stoves and our ovens get lots of love and attention. So they are pretty even as far as ovens go. Our knives are always super sharp. Every knife should be super sharp. But when someone is at home, they can work with a knife and realize through instruction that they're getting in a virtual class, oh, my knife does need to be sharpened. Yeah. Or, oh, my oven does have a weird hot spot. And I have to be smart about the way That I adapt to those things, and the way that I treat my tools, the way that I work around allergies or food preferences for me and my family, these are all things that people are able to learn more quickly. I think when they're in their their own own kitchens, in their own kitchens, Mm -hmm. right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So that's a huge lesson for me: is that virtual classes aren't just a second best option or or a plan B they really have extraordinary value unto themselves. Another big thing that makes me extremely happy, and I might be wandering away from your question now, so ring me in, but I just love that our classes now reach people from all over the country and all over the world, right? You don't have to get to Boston. You don't have to park, which is extremely hard in downtown (laughs) Boston. You don't, you know, You, people are in Idaho. People are in Spain. We have a very regular student from Hawaii. People are all over the place in different time zones. They're experiencing different seasons, right? So some people were using tomatoes in a recipe and some people are saying they have amazing, great tomatoes already. And other people are talking about what they need to do to make not that good supermarket tomatoes taste better. And all of that is so educational For everyone who's there, and we're also making an an experience that's so much more accessible for people geographically and from a price point perspective. Right, because people are buying their own ingredients. You aren't
0: providing all of the ingredients for everybody. I think that that really makes a a big difference. Because I bet also there's a whole lot of waste in the cooking school, the in-person cooking school, even if you try very hard to reuse things and everybody needs their own onion their own this their own that as opposed to oh you only need a little bit of this so I you Mm. personally can put the rest of it in your refrigerator to use again
1: yeah Yeah. and I also again this is this is not the schnazziest side of cooking but like shopping is part of cooking right Right. and so I think there is value in people and us we give people a list we give people a lot of support before virtual class and this is this is what you need. And if it's an ingredient that we think they might not be able to find in their standard grocery store, we do our absolute best to provide substitutions that you can use. And that means that people who are cooking along with us in class are not just learning how to cook, they're learning how to source and shop. And to your point, they're also thinking about like, okay, this recipe used half an onion. I'm not just, I hope my students aren't going to sit there and let that other half of an onion you know rot and sprout or whatever like they're going to think about how to use it and where possible we're going to give them ideas of how to use it Mm -hmm. so that we are not asking people to get an ingredient that they're going to use one teaspoon of and then it's going to sit there in the back of their fridge or their pantry and it's going to go to waste we really think a lot in cooking school about how to make sure, how to really support our students as they are trying to manage their own their own food waste and their own food footprint.
0: Right, right. So how many people, and of course, to me, this is a really interesting question of just by doing anything online, how many people actually participate in the class while it's happening versus the ones who look at a recording of it later, just because of convenience or crazy time zone changes or things like
1: that? Great question. And it it definitely varies from class to class. Right now, our sort of average registration for one of our live stream classes is about 300 people who sign up for the class. But then, as you said, not everyone is going to be there in real time because maybe the time zone doesn't work for them or something comes up or what have you. So usually the rough way that it shakes out is that about half the people who register for one of our classes come and are there in real time. So 150 or so attendees at each of these events. But then we record all of our classes. And if you're signed up for a class, then you get the recording, which you can watch and rewatch if you want to which I think can be particularly helpful for something like knife skills. Maybe, maybe you just want someone to walk you through it again. And maybe Uh Uh again, again, as you're thinking about your pinch grip and your claw and your rock and your push and your slice, like all of these knife skills that we cover, but if you're really on a a journey (laughs) to becoming confident, you get to rewatch it. If that helps to continue your learning.
0: And Do you have a good balance? I mean, what do you consider a good balance between using staff to teach certain
1: things and having guest teachers? I love that question. That is a ratio that also changes depending on the season. Like in January, for example, we do a lot of Milk Street taught classes Mm -hmm. because early in the year, everyone's thinking about kind of cooking fundamentals, very resolution oriented cooking goals. And so in January, we have maybe more than 50% of our events, of which right now we run between three and six classes and workshops every single week. Mm -hmm. January, for example, a lot of Milk Street teachers, because we are doing a lot of cooking techniques and fundamentals like knife skills, like spices, like herbs, basic protein things, just like how to work with chicken And also kind of these nerdy things that we love at Milk Street about cooking theory, about kitchen improvisation, things like that. Mm -hmm. In the rest of the year, it works out to be probably 25 to 30% Milk Street taught classes, maybe one third Milk Street taught classes, and then about two thirds guest taught classes. And the thing that I love about running our guest chef program is... I mean, A, selfishly, I get to learn a lot from our guest teachers because our guests bring a real knowledge in a certain cuisine area or a certain technique area where at Milk Street, our instruction tends to be more general techniques, general foundational cooking information. I said, A, and now I don't know what my B was. (laughs) Let's see. I love our guest chef program because B, our guests are so cool. And so I get to hang out with them. I should have had, if I was going to say an A, I should have had a B in my pocket. (laughs) Well, one of the things
0: that I wanted to tell you is that number one, this was the first time I'd ever done this. So Mm -hmm. I've never taught a class online. And I was a little intimidated, not by the teaching part, but by the technology part, Ooh, yeah. because I really wasn't familiar with how to bring in the the second camera being my, my phone <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And so I found, of course, your staff was very helpful. So that was very helpful to have like a little rehearsal beforehand yeah. to kind of set it up but it really wasn't that difficult and i oh. was really amazed at how it just seemed to be kind of natural partially because we're all so used to dealing with our our iphones and yeah. uh, and talking on the on our computer but it really was pretty much um something that once I started doing it, it felt not not peculiar, but felt very natural. And I think that that probably adds something to being able to have online classes, because as we become more and more tech savvy in those ways, and just are used to manipulating these instruments like telephones, it makes it less awkward for the teacher to be doing this. And of course I was doing it in my own kitchen. And so that made it really easy too.
1: Yeah. We keep it very simple. We don't want people to want to, or have to get any technological tools that they don't already have. When I teach, I have a computer and I have my phone mm-hmm. and that's what I ask guest teachers to also have. And sometimes people feel, anxious about their kitchens, like are their kitchens pretty enough? Um, and our students don't care. <laughs> they don't care. I think honestly, some of them find it sort of comforting that these amazing, talented chefs and authors and restaurateurs have like kind of weird little kitchens. Yeah. Great, it's very humanizing, right? To yeah. get to see the real place where all of this amazing food can be produced and then it doesn't have to require a top of the line streamlined space. Mm-hmm. On the tech side, we just figured the simpler we can keep it for guests, the easier we make it for guests to say yes, Yes, uh, invest in anything fancy. Mm-hmm. And like you said, we always run a tech check to just smooth out any wrinkles that the, the technological side of things might introduce. I will also say you're not the first person to be like, huh this was really fun. We <laughs> worked with some people who teach a class with me and it's maybe the first times they've run a virtual event, which a lot of people did sort of begrudgingly at the beginning, right? It's like, well, oh, I can't go on a real book tour. So now I'm going to do this instead. Right. And then this year people can do in-person book tour events, but what I'm seeing is that people really want to do both. And it, there's no reason not to, there's no reason not to get the best, of both of these worlds you can reach people who are not able for whatever reason to come to your in person event on a virtual event and then you are getting you're getting your book or you're just getting your knowledge and your your insights out to this huge audience right. i've definitely had other guest chefs who have seen how easy it is to teach a class with us computer phone zoom spotlight chat easy peasy and then they start teaching their own their own classes and that makes me really happy Because we do definitely work with some guests on a, like on a repeat basis, repeat being like a handful of times a year, Uh but now there are people I've worked with in the past who are off teaching their own classes where they have a class every week, or they have a class of their own every month. Oh, wow. I, I love that. I love that this cracked the ice or sort of like shook away the scaries of doing virtual events for Yes. And they're connecting with their audience in this platform.
0: No, I think, I think that I can understand why somebody would, would do that, especially if they had already a setup for promotion and all the other parts of it, because it's not just teaching the class. Obviously you have to promote it. You have to have a way to make it um, available and yeah, yet so it's not quite as simple as just oh well. I think I'm going to teach a class and everybody's just going to be uh, everybody's going to be- show up out right, of nowhere.
1: Exactly, it's true. The promotion.
0: So, what do you think about this for uh, on a professional basis? Because we're talking about enthusiast classes right now. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about training chefs. Do you think that there's a place for this in in actually training chefs?
1: That's an interesting question. I'm certainly not the ultimate authority on that side of things because I've only ever been a teacher of enthusiasts. I also am not a professionally trained chef myself, so I don't have an experience of going through a certificate or degree granting culinary program, Mm -hmm. to be totally honest with you. The first time that I've thought about this, as you are asking this very good question. I personally, it's very much from a personal perspective, I think it would be very exciting if the virtual format could be at least part of professional culinary training Mm -hmm. as a way to mitigate cost and to make it more accessible to more people. Mm -hmm. Culinary training is very expensive to get, and it sets you out into an industry that is not necessarily immediately particularly remunerative, right? right? And so if there are ways to think about this pl- this medium, the, the, the virtual medium, as a way to make that educational system more equitable, I would love to see that happen. I have no idea how it would work logistically or legally or any of that, but as a seed of an idea, oh, that would really bring me personally so much joy to see people receiving the training they want to receive with a little bit less of an investment of having to be in a certain place to receive that training. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, definitely
1: see that. So has Milk Street turned
0: to in-person classes too now? Not
1: really. We have, by overwhelming popular demand, decided to offer one in person intensive this summer. So at the end of July, we're having a two day event. So it's a Friday and a Saturday at our space in Milk Street, very much the format of an in person event that we had prior to the pandemic. 16 people, people are working in pairs, they're each at a fully equipped kitchen station, you know, they have their little mise en place set out for them. We all sit down to enjoy a meal at the end. Sure, you can tell from my voice that I'm very excited about this because Uh despite all the love that I have for virtual classes, I also love the occasional in-person event. Uh I will say that I, at this precise moment, find it hard to imagine going back to the cadence of in-person events that we had pre-pandemic. We were offering three or sometimes four in-person classes every week at our space in Boston the future that I find it easier to imagine at this point, given that even after a couple of years, we continue to have a really robust audience for our virtual events, is that sprinkling in a handful of in-person options over the course of each year, seems like a great way to, once again, sort of get the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. We get reach, broad audience, lots of accessibility with our virtual classes. And then we get to just enjoy the interpersonal wonder of hanging out together with occasional in-person events. That's the formula that I imagine right now. Mm -hmm. Talk to me again a year from now, because who knows? Maybe people will just decide they never wanna hang out on Zoom ever again, and then we'll adapt. You have to adapt to the needs of your audience and your market, right? So maybe in the future, we are back to teaching more in-person. Me personally, I hope that I get to continue teaching classes from my kitchen for years and years to come.
0: Well, so let me ask you this question that I think is apropos that came to my head while you were answering the question. So the, the reach of the online class is something that can continue to grow and change because of the nature of online classes, Mm -hmm. but Milk Street in-person classes require you to be in Boston, right? And so does that mean that you have a lot of, say, let's call them tourists, or do you really only deal with the Boston audience so that you're really teaching the same people over and over again, (laughs) as opposed to the possibility of having the broader audience online? Because you, regardless of of how terrific the classes are in person, how many times is a person going to take the same class over and over again? Um, and if right. they live in Boston, you know they take it, and then maybe you know they say, "Oh, I'll take that one again three years from now or something." What is your percentage of visitor to Boston versus
1: in-person classes? I don't have those stats right on the top of on the top of my head, but. It's a mix, is my short answer, is that there are definitely people who are planning a trip to Boston from out of town and looking around for fun things to do, and they come upon Milk Street. Uh That's one one group of people who get excited about our in-person classes. There's also a group of people, especially for our upcoming class this summer, who are big fans of Milk Street and might plan a trip to Boston knowing that they want to come to a class. Uh And then we have lots of folks who are in the kind of greater, you know, Boston- Massachusetts, Vermont, yeah, the sort of driving area, and we'll maybe, like, make a Boston weekend out of it, Uh so it's a mix there, but I will say that we have many more regulars, like regular regulars, at our virtual school than we ever had at our in-person school, because it is so much easier in various ways to attend a virtual class, and so, so I see the same names, you know, and the faces in our virtual classes all the time. We ran, we ran some numbers at the end of 2021 about our previous two years or not quite two years of offering virtual events. Uh-huh. And we had a couple dozen people who had come to over a hundred oh. virtual classes. My best. goodness. Isn't that amazing? amazing. I made made them little cards, little 100 club cards, and we sent them a little present from the Milk Street store because they just, they love our classes. And there really has grown out a community of people there. Students say hi to each other. I'm sure that students are like using the Zoom private message feature to chat with each other during class. In a counterintuitive way, there's a little bit more of a sense of community there
0: uh-huh.
1: than the sense of community from an in-person event. But it's a trade-off of experiences, right? One of them is community via repetition. Right. Right. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Mm-hmm. And the other one is is the more instant community that you do get when you are hanging out in a in a room, room with, with other, other people. people. Yeah. So one of them is one of them grows more quickly and one of them takes more time to build. But what we have seen is that If you stick with it, you can build a community out of it. Right, right.
0: Well, April, I want to thank you so much for being on Tip of the Tongue today. And I hope we talk again soon.
1: Liz, I hope so, too. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was such a fun conversation. Thanks for listening to
0: Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.